Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I have four words for you that is going to thrill you. And here they are. Jesus is coming again. All right. See, it worked, didn't it? You're thrilled, as am I. We're going to talk about that today with Mark Atterbury. He he is the author. He's a uh, speaker, a writer, a consultant, and he is going to talk to us about that very joyous topic. Mark, welcome. Hey, it's good to be with you, Bill. Yeah. I mean, I know we hear a lot of bad news all week long. We do. In fact, it, just about everybody I meet, at least strike up a conversation, and maybe not 100%, but most of the people I meet, they open with some kind of comment about how bad things are these days. And and I think everybody, even if you don't watch the news even in the evenings, of course, if you do watch the news, you're really depressed. But if you don't <laughs> watch the news, you still have to put gas in your car and yep. you still go to the grocery store. And you see how high the prices are. And then if you do catch a little snippet of news here and there, it's about a mass shooting or a war in Ukraine, or it's about violent crime exploding across the country, or it's about opioids, or it's about the southern border and how many criminals and, and terrorists are coming into our country. And it's really hard to get away from just this awful news that surrounds us, and it has people really discouraged and pessimistic and sometimes even feeling hopeless. And so I thought, you know, I need to think of something positive to say to people, something encouraging. And uh, so I got onto this thing about reminding people that Jesus is coming again. I, I believe that is the greatest news we'll ever hear. People who are living in a fallen world, and we struggle, and, and, and life is so hard at times, but it's not always going to be this way. Jesus is coming again. And there's a passage of Scripture in First Thessalonians that I, I'm drawn to when this topic comes up. And I'll just read part of it. it. Paul is speaking, and he says, I'm telling you this directly from the Lord, and I love that part. This is not Paul's ideas. This is not his opinion. This is... This is a message from God. He says, we who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, Mm -hmm. with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And he says, first, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. And then together with them, we who are alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then comes the really great part. He says, then we will be with the Lord forever. And I love the tag he puts on that passage. The very last line of verse 18 says, so encourage each other with these words. Oh, no further calls. We've got a winner. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So I I seized on that, and I thought, well, he says to use these words to encourage each other, so that's what I started trying to do. I I just started suggesting to people who are moaning and groaning about the way things are, I said, you know what? It's not always going to be this way. Jesus is coming again. And And it is amazing 
you said it a moment, moment ago, it is amazing how people perk up when you say that. People of faith. I mean, we know this is true. We know Jesus is coming again, but it's so easy to let it drift far away from our minds. And so if we bring it back to the forefront, we, we think about it, it really is encouraging. I don't know, Bill, if you are a late night TV talk show guy. I'm not. But many years ago, if you were maybe about 20 years old at the time and you were watching The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, you happened maybe one night to see Billy Graham on there as a guest. And you talk about strange bedfellows. Those two guys are about as different as night and day, Mm -hmm. Johnny Carson and Billy Graham. But they sat there one night on the set of the show, and Johnny Carson said this to Billy Graham. He said, Billy, what do you think would happen if Jesus came to earth again? I bet we would do him in again. And I love Billy Graham's answer. He said, you know, Johnny, Jesus said that he would return to earth, but it'll be different this time. The first time he came in love, but the next time he's coming in power. And then he added this. He said, believe me, no one will do him in. And I think that really is what Paul was saying in 1 Thessalonians 4, when he said the Lord is coming from heaven with a commanding shout and and with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. This is not going to be a meek arrival in a manger. This is going to be a powerful coming. And I'm captivated by that, um, that idea that he's coming with a commanding shout. I wonder what in the world he's going to shout. Is it going to be just a, a cry like a war hoop? Is it going to be a, a, a statement? Is it going to be a word, maybe a phrase? Well, I don't know what it's going to be. But the way my mind works, I like to think about what it could be, maybe what it might be. And I've come up with a little something that I think if he did say it, and I can't guarantee that he will, I don't know, but if he did, it would certainly be appropriate and it, it's kind of instructive if we think about it. I think two words that he could shout that would have a lot of meaning for us, those two words would be no more. If he came on the clouds and he said no more, what could he be referring to? Well, let's think about it. For Christians, when Jesus comes again, there's going to be no more pain. And the power of that is almost mind-blowing because much of our lives is wrapped up, are wrapped up in pain. Um, Physical discomfort, I mean, think about all the people in hospitals, think about all the people walking around with casts on their bodies and, and, you know, just incredible types of pain, black eyes, sprained ankles, broken bones, cancer, Um, even people who are my age, they learn to live with pain, pain every day, because there comes a point in your life where just about everything hurts all the time. And I was talking to a guy one time who said, you know, I've reached the age where everything hurts. He said, Mark, uh, even when my underwear starts creeping up on me, I don't even bother to fix it. because I know that's the best feeling I'm going to have all day. <laughs> and, and it's true. I mean, I've reached that age where just about everything hurts all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and but our promise is that when Jesus comes again, that all ends. We don't have any more physical discomfort of any kind. Mm-hmm. 
But there's another kind of pain that's just really tough to deal with, and that's sorrow. And I'm sure there are people listening to this broadcast right now whose hearts are broken for who knows what reason. Maybe a loved one has died recently, or maybe they've gotten a a bad report from their doctor, or maybe some hope or dream that they've been chasing is now dashed forever. And the sorrow they feel is is almost overwhelming. But Revelation 24 says that when Jesus comes again, he'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. Then he says these things are going to be gone forever. Now, I don't know how you get any better news than that, but that's the promise of Scripture. And then the third thing I think about, if Jesus said no more for Christians— it would mean no more shame. See, that's the third kind of pain that we all deal with. And shame is the pain you feel when you know you've blown it. It's it's just such a devastating thing. Think about Judas. He was ashamed of himself for betraying Jesus, so ashamed that he went out and hung himself for, from a tree. And uh, David in the Old Testament had that affair with Bathsheba, and he was so ashamed about that that in Psalm 51, he's writing about it. And he says that at that time in his life, uh, his rebellion haunted him day and night. I don't know if you've ever been haunted day and night by something you did, but it's just awful to be in that situation. There's an English poet named Nicholas Rowe, who said that guilt or shame is like a fiend that follows along behind you with a whip. And I think that's such a powerful picture, how you just can't get away from the pain of guilt uh, when it's heaped upon you. But when Jesus comes again, all of that is going to be gone. I I just don't know how you get any better news than this as a Christian, to know that no matter what's going on in this world, all the pain you feel, all the physical discomfort, uh, all the sorrow, all the shame that that you encounter in life, it's all going to be gone. And so I try to encourage Christians with that. Um, But then you've got to think about, what about the people who aren't Christians when Jesus comes again? What is there for them to know? Well, I think Jesus, if he shouted no more, For non-Christians, it will be um, a statement that there's no more chance to to get right with God. And I know that sounds like bad news on the surface, but I think it's it's actually good news because it comes to us as a warning in Scripture that they hear that warning. Hopefully, they will respond. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5.3 says, when people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them suddenly, as suddenly as a A pregnant woman's labor pains begin, and there will be no escape. Well, that's a sobering thought, but it's a good thing to know. We want that warning so that people who aren't following Christ can make a a decision about whether they want to or not, whether they want to uh, begin following him. Bill, one of the things that discourages me so much is that there are believers and unbelievers alike, but there are people who don't believe this. They do not believe that anybody's going to go to hell. I've had people say to me, Mark, the Bible says God is love. 
And if God is love, I just can't believe that he's going to send anybody to an eternal, fiery hell. And I try to remind them that the same Bible that says God is love also says that we are going to reap what we sow. Mm. Mark, I have got a big question about what you uh, what we've just been talking about, and I, I probably will address it after the break because we're at that point in the show where I do have to step aside just for a second. But, sure. Uh, we have got such good news knowing that Jesus is coming again, and Mark Atterbury is my guest. You, you can learn about Mark and his amazing books at a little stronger everyday.com. A little stronger everyday.com. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. My guest for you today is Mark Atterbury. We're talking about the Lord is coming back. Jesus is coming back. That's such good news. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, Mark, there's this thing just jumped off the page when you were talking about it. It says, everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin and there will be no escape. So that word disaster, and you think of the lost, disaster will fall on them suddenly. It's very humbling to hear that. But... Do they not believe because they don't want to or because they can't believe because they're so spiritually blinded? I think it could be both, actually. Some people are so spiritually blinded that they just wouldn't know the truth if it was right in front of them. They Mm -hmm. wouldn't be able to see it. But I do think there are people who, you know, we all tell ourselves things that we know may not be true, but we, we try to convince ourselves um, so that we don't have to change, you know, so that we can go on doing what we're doing. Like we try to minimize our sin or whatever. We try to, well, that's not so bad. I'm not as bad as that person over there. You know, we try to convince ourselves of things. And and I think there are people out there who are not living for the Lord, and they are trying to convince themselves that, you know, hey, the Bible says God is love, and, and he's, he's going to, he's not going to be um, he's not going to send me to hell when it comes right down to it. He loves me. The Bible tells me he loves me, and he wants me to be happy. And, you know, there's all kinds of things we try to convince ourselves of, but the Bible's very clear. And that verse right there, First Thessalonians 5.3, says it's going to be a disaster for anyone who doesn't have a relationship with Christ. And it's it's all about sowing and reaping. If you have sown a life of disobedience, and rejecting God and ignoring his word and living the way you want to live, then what you're going to reap is that judgment. And that law of sowing and reaping is not going to suddenly be, um, you know, declared null and void at judgment day. That's when it's really going to come into play. Um, I was reading not long ago some famous last words of well-known people. And you never know if these things are totally accurate or not. Some of them may be more urban legend than anything. But but I was reading about Mark Twain when he was on his deathbed, and uh, somebody asked him how he felt 
about standing before God. And Mark Twain, in a famous response, said, I think I'm going to need a good lawyer. And clever, witty, but I got news for everybody. If you stand before God without Jesus Christ, without a relationship with Jesus Christ, there's no lawyer in the world that's going to do you any good. The Bible says there will be no escape. But the good news is that we've been warned. The good news is that God has been open with us. He has told us this. He has given us every opportunity to to accept him. And and so when when Jesus comes again and he says no more, if he does, it could mean no more pain for Christians, no more chances for unbelievers. Then there's one more thing. If he said no more, I think he could be saying, hey, no more wondering. Because we do, don't we? We wonder when Jesus is going to come back. We speculate. We think about it. Um, One of my favorite stories, this is absolutely true. You can look this up. Just Google it. You'll see all this stuff. Way back in the 1980s, a preacher by the name of Edgar Wisenant published a little booklet called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. And you already know since it's the year 2022 that he was wrong. But it's amazing what happened when he came out with that little book. He said that Jesus was going to return on September 10th, 11th, or 12th of 1988. He had done a lot of calculations, done a lot of Bible study, and he had come up with this prediction, and the media picked it up, and suddenly people were were getting on board with this thing. They were selling their possessions, getting ready to go to heaven, and I'm— Really not sure why you would sell your possessions to get ready to go to heaven, because it's true you can't take your possessions with you when you go, but neither can you take the money you make with them uh, if you sell them. So I'm not sure what the point of that was. But people did this, and they were preparing to go to heaven, but obviously Jesus didn't return in 1988. So Edgar Wisenant stepped up, and he said, now wait a minute, maybe I made a miscalculation. Maybe my math was wrong, and so he dove back into his numbers, and he calculated everything again, and he came back, and he said, you know, I did. I made a mistake. It's actually 1989 when Jesus is going to return, and of course, he didn't return in 89 either, and you would think that when things like that happen, everybody would realize, wait a minute, this is a futile endeavor. Nobody knows, but strangely enough, about 10 years later, it all started up again. You may remember at the turn of the millennium, there were so many people predicting that something cataclysmic was going to happen, that Jesus was going to return in the year 2000, but of course, he didn't. And, and so there are so many people out there wondering when it's going to happen, maybe trying to speculate, but Matthew 24, 36 says, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself, only the Father knows. And I just want to say this straight out, maybe it's a little blunt, but just stop trying to figure out when it's going to happen. Here's my advice to anyone who's thinking about the second coming of Jesus. Don't be trying to figure out when it's going to happen. Just live your life in a way that you'll be ready whenever it happens. And I think that's the best way to approach it. Don't worry about when, just worry about being ready because it is going to happen. And you know, Bill, for every one of us, it'll be either the greatest day of our lives or the worst. 
um, you know, when, when Jesus comes again with that commanding shout, you know, you're going to be running to meet the Lord or you're going to be heading for the hills. You're going to be screaming with excitement or you're going to be screaming in terror. There's not going to be any middle ground. There's nobody when Jesus comes again that's going to be hemming and hawing about it. You're either going to be totally excited or totally terrified. And he is coming. Somebody pointed out to me recently that um, the New Testament mentions the second coming of Christ 300 times. Wow. I, didn't, I didn't know that, and I haven't counted them. But that's what I read, and I thought, that's incredible. 300 times in the New Testament, the second coming is mentioned. And I relate it this way. Like if you were driving down a road and you saw a sign beside the road that said, bridge out ahead you would think, wow, I'm glad I saw that sign. I'm glad I wasn't looking the other direction when I passed that sign. You'd be thankful for that sign. But what if you saw 300 signs telling you there was a bridge out ahead? Well, you would say at least this to yourself. Wow, somebody really wanted me to know there's a bridge out ahead. Wanted to make sure I didn't miss the sign to put out 300 of them. Well, That's what God did in the New Testament. He Mm. mentioned the second coming 300 times. I think that's God saying, folks, I don't want you to miss this. This is the greatest thing that's ever going to happen. I don't want you to miss it. He put out 300 signs so that we would know Jesus is coming. And Mark, the common sense part of me says, why don't you just fix the bridge? Well, I mean, putting up 300 good. signs is expensive. Just spend the money to fix the bridge. Exactly. But I love exactly. your point. And the question you might want to ask is, are you mad at the sign, and are you mad at the people that put the signs up? Right. You should be grateful that you have news. You're not going to drive off a bridge that's not there. Right. And that's why I say that even the warning to unbelievers is still good news. Because it's telling you what's coming and giving you an opportunity to do something about it. Now, you can choose to ignore the sign and drive right off the cliff if you want to, mm-hmm. but, but that's your choice. You don't have to do that. You've been given every opportunity to be saved. Well, so good. Um, such a delight, Mark. And I'm thinking of what Paul said. He said it so well in Romans 13 11. He said, time is running out. Wake up for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So uh, what Absolutely. a clarion call for those who might be thinking, I don't know if I'm right with God today. I need to be right with God and and uh, be in right relationship with him. Amen. Yeah, yeah. You're a delight. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hey, well, thank you for inviting me. I enjoy it. Yeah, and I am... Uh, Wanting to just let everyone who heard this interview, uh, if you want to pass it on to a friend, do so. You can also go to Mark's website, a littlestrongereveryday.com. And he's got a number of books and things to read and check up on, and you will be delighted to go and check it out. So, Mark, have a great rest of the day, and we'll do this again. Hey, thanks, Bill. Talk to you soon. You bet. All right, we'll take a little break, and we will be uh, right back with Dr. Cal Beisner. We're going to get an update on what's going on with the climate.
Has it been hotter than usual lately? Has the temperature across the world seemed to have spiked, and is is there problems? And how do we think about that? And my guest is Dr. Cal Beisner. He's the president and founder and national spokesman for the Cornwall Alliance. You can always learn about him at cornwallalliance.org. It's an amazing think tank. I've never been invited to be in a think tank, but that doesn't mean I don't like Cal because I do. Cal, welcome. <laughs> Hi, Bill. Thanks very much. Yeah. Glad to be with you again. Yeah, it's always and, a delight. Uh, yeah, we we try to think well at Cornwall Alliance. Yeah, for you do. For creation. Yep. You do a great job. And I, I listened you. to your full-hour interview with David Wheaton over the weekend, and it was awesome. So thank you oh, for that. Thanks. David's, yeah, David's a, <laughs> David's a brilliant guy. He can make anybody sound smart. Yeah, he's really good. He's a regular guest on my show as well. So yeah. uh, now putting that aside... What is with the summer heat waves? Is it extraordinary, or is it kind of what we can expect? Well, um, you know, maybe the first thing that I would point out to people is that basically weather moves heat around the world. Um, You know, the basic movement is heat from the tropics toward the poles and then cold from the poles toward the tropics. Hurricanes do a whole lot of that, but just basic trade winds do that as well. So whenever you have heat waves in some areas, you can be guaranteed that there are cold snaps going on in other areas. Mm. Uh, So (laughs) uh, you can have record-setting heat in some places and record-setting cold in other places at the very same time. And they basically balance each other out. The, the climate system is not in absolute equilibrium, but it's fairly close to it. And so that's sort of the first common sense sort of response that we should have when people say, oh, my goodness, look at this. We're, we're seeing record heat waves here. There's proof of man-made, disastrous, catastrophic global warming. Uh, no. Uh, But then, uh, too, we really need to look back in history, and unfortunately, not too many people are are very prone to do that. Uh, One of the great uh, American philosophers, George Santayana at uh, Harvard, once wrote, those who do not remember history are condemned to repeat it. Well, um, you know, those who don't remember climate history are condemned not to repeat climate. <laughs> we, we can't exactly do that. But to uh, latch on to fears of unprecedented, historically uh, record-breaking things, when in fact, they're not. Uh, and that's the case with this summer's heat wave here in the United States. Uh, we've had part of the country be cooler than usual. We've had part of the country be hotter than usual. And, of course, if it's cooler than usual in the summer, everybody thinks, oh, that's really nice. <laughs> if it's hotter than usual in the summer, people think, oh, my goodness, this is awful. Uh, well, that's kind of the way it is. So the cool temperatures in summer don't get any attention. The hot temperatures do. Uh, but what's been happening is that the news media and, unfortunately, even some official agencies have not been looking far enough back in history. 
the long the longer term records show that the heat waves in the 1930s remain the most severe in recorded U.S. history. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you can go to an EPA, that's Federal Environmental Protection Agency, page on uh, climate change uh, indicators, colon, heat waves. And the first thing that you see if you go to that page, and I, I write about this in an article that is on our website and in our blog uh, at cornwallalliance.org, um, and I, I reproduce the the, uh, the top of the EPA's page there. The first thing that you see is four bar graphs. The bars are in red, which of course is always attention getting and tends to be alarming. You know, you see a red light, you want to stop, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so these four bar graphs uh, depict trends in the frequency and the intensity and a couple of other issues about the, 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 the spread of heat waves in the United States from the decade of the 1960s to the decade of the 2010s. And all four of those bar graphs show clear upward trend. And so if you log to that page, you see that, and bingo, you think, wow, obviously this is unprecedented heat. Well, that's figure one on that page, and it's the only figure that shows when you first turn to the page, there are very, very faint, faded representations of three other figures, small, farther down the page, and uh, figure three of those shows you, if you click through to it, the actual uh, record of state uh, heat wave intensity, duration, and and frequency in all 50 states stretching back to the 1890s. And if you go there, what you discover, and I reproduce this graph on our page as well, what you discover is the heat waves of the mid-1930s were more than five times as intense, frequent, and lengthy in duration than any of the heat waves of the last decade or so in the United States. Nothing even comes close. And so what you've got is a government agency, the EPA, presenting data in a way that is uh, highly uh, misleading You can't quite say they lie because, after all, they do provide the other data. It's just that you have to read more carefully and you have to look at these smaller, very faint graphs and click on one to get this. And then they also – they don't make it clear in that first part of the page that all four of those graphs with the red bars deal only with heat waves – in the nation's 50 largest Mm. cities. And that's very significant because the the locations of our 50 largest cities have changed over the years since the 1930s. I mean, it's not as cities picked up and moved, (laughs) right? Yeah, Yeah, right. Instead, it used to be that the, the, the 50 largest cities and the 10 largest cities were mostly in the northeast, and uh, so they were not in the southeast and the southwest, which are the hottest parts of the country. Well, now 
a majority of our largest cities are in the southeast and the southwest. Well, those are warmer places. Good point. <laughs> so uh, you're, you're bound to see a difference. And then besides that, the cities have been growing. And there's a phenomenon called the urban heat island effect. Uh, urban areas are warmer than rural areas because the asphalt and the concrete buildings and things like that absorb heat instead of just reflecting it right back out towards space. Mm-hmm. And so these areas are warmer. Well, those cities have grown over these years as well. And uh, so all of that goes into the apparent increase in frequency and intensity and duration of heat waves since the 1960s. And even despite that, what's recent can't begin to compare with the 1930s. Yeah, that's nutty. And then if we just think about it for a minute, Cal, and you say this in the article, there's no home or office or factory that had air conditioning in in 1930. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why all our biggest cities were in the north and the northeast, because, hey, those were those were reasonably comfortably livable uh, in the summertime. Air conditioning changed everything for America. And so you had more people moving to southern states, uh, especially older people, because cold snaps on average kill 20 times as many people a day as do heat waves. Uh, And so if you're getting older and more vulnerable to, uh, you know, to uh, weather problems, well, you want to go where it's warmer, not where it's colder. So our population's been migrating to warmer areas, and that's why we're experiencing more heat waves, even when maybe there aren't more heat waves. Mm-hmm. We've got more people experiencing them. Yeah, but even though 1930 was the biggest heat wave ever in the U.S., it's not going to matter in conversation if you say, yeah, but what about 1930? Because people are yeah. so committed to having this urgent crisis being today. Yeah, well, that's partly because this whole uh, issue of heat waves has become a uh, a card in the card game of persuading people that human activity is driving dangerous to catastrophic global warming. And so if you can make this case uh, and, and people get onto it and begin to see it as a sort of a raison d'etre, a, a reason for being, uh, for their lives. Oh, now I have a greater purpose uh, than just myself. I can be defending the earth itself against the existential threat of global warming. It gets pretty hard to look at just objective scientific data. And uh, instead, you're on a mission mm-hmm. and you get blinders on and you see only what you want to see. But frankly, you know, I, I believe, uh, as Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will will make you free. And ultimately, of course, that truth is Jesus himself, but it's also other truth. And uh, if we're patient, if we continue to present good data, good uh, good arguments, good reasoning to people, ultimately, I think people come around. It just can take a little while. But that's, you know, that's what Cornwall Alliance is dedicated to doing. Uh, sort of my life verse, if I have one, is probably First Thessalonians five twenty one, where Paul says, "Test all things, hold fast what is good," and uh, that's that's what we try to encourage at the Cornwall Alliance through 
everything we do, our, our podcasts and our, uh, our uh, articles online, our videos on YouTube and Facebook and the like. Mm-hmm. Dr. Cal Beisner is my guest. He's at the Cornwall Alliance. Dot org. You can learn more about him there as well and his brilliant staff of um, smart people that write on these topics. And I want to ask you about renewable energy, and I, I know we hear about it a lot, but mm-hmm. when you think of wind farms and solar panels and all of that, it, they make it sound kind of tidy. We just pop some of these up, and boy, we're yeah. good to go with green renewable energy. Are you buying yeah. any of that, Cal? Right. Well, first, I've never, I've never seen a wind farm I've seen a lot of wind factories, but, you know, farms are places where you grow plants and animals. Uh, <laughs> these things are not farms, but if you call them farms, that makes people a little more uh, romantically inclined toward them. But uh, wind and solar as as power sources are just disastrously bad. A uh, number of different reasons. First off, of course, they're intermittent. The wind doesn't always blow, and an average of 50% of the time, the sun doesn't shine even without including clouds. And, of course, when you include clouds, <laughs> it doesn't shine anywhere near so much. So you've got an intermittent source for energy to feed into the the power grid. Uh, but what you need in a power grid is uh, great stability. I, I just had a call today from a uh, farmer up in northern Michigan uh, whose township is uh, discussing this evening a, uh, a proposal to approve the construction of a large solar uh, facility, utility-scale solar facility. But up in that part of Michigan, uh, you don't have much sunshine at all in the winter, and there are a couple of months during which, on average, you have a grand total of three sunny days. So if you're going to build a utility-scale solar system up there, you not only have the normal intermittency of solar from day and night and from ordinary clouds, you have this problem. And then in addition, there are statutes on the books that prevent the placement of wind or solar facilities on certain kinds of places like wetlands or prime agricultural land, or he named off about five different uh, different categories. Well, what that means is that if they're going to do utility-scale solar up there, they're going to have to put a few panels here and a few panels there and a few panels somewhere else and a few panels somewhere else. Well, the result is you now have to build far more transition uh, transmission lines from these spots of solar arrays to get all that power to the centralized grid, and that increases the price of it all. So mm. those are part of the problem. And then another part of the problem is that uh, it takes fossil fuel energy to make the components of wind and solar uh, equipment because they require temperatures far higher than can be achieved just from electricity. You need very high temperatures to make the uh, the the, uh, the specialized uh, components of wind and uh, wind turbines and solar panels. And then two, they both use what are called rare earth minerals and certain metals, especially cobalt, uh, that have to be mined. And they're 
concentration in the earth and their locations in the earth are uh, so low that you have to move vastly more earth to get enough of these minerals to make these things than you do to get coal or uh, oil or natural gas. Mm. So we're actually resulting in, you know, <laughs> more damage to the earth this way. And by the way, all the machinery that moves all that earth burns diesel fuel. Yeah, doesn't so surprise me. We're not getting away from fossil yeah, fuels I didn't by think doing we this. We're becoming think... even more dependent because you have to have uh, electric generating stations powered by fossil fuels to make up for the intermittency of the wind and solar. Yeah. Dr. Cal Beisner is my guest. He's at the CornwallAlliance.org. That's CornwallAlliance.org. We'll take a break. Be right back. Thanks so much for listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Hey, I'm Susie Larson. If you enjoy what you're finding here, consider subscribing to some of our other faith radio podcasts, like mine, for instance. You can search Susie Larson Live at myfaithradio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit subscribe and have a great day. I'm back with Dr. Cal Beisner. He's the founder of the CornwallAlliance.org. Go learn more about that. And also, the CornwallAlliance.org usually always offers some very interesting resource for a donation of any size. Cal, what do you got on the uh, books right now? Oh, boy. This month we have a fantastic book called Fossil Future. It's by Alex Epstein. Uh, About a decade ago, he wrote a small book called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, Fossil fuels, or pardon me, fossil future is a major expansion of the same argument, but in a uh, very different way. Brilliant book. Why we need more coal, oil, and natural gas, not less, for the future for human flourishing. Uh, it's a it's a brilliant book, and uh, it actually uh, it retails at thirty dollars. And during the month of August, we will send a copy as our way of saying thanks when people make a donation, 100% tax deductible of literally any size, and request it. That's Uh, generous. Yeah. And by the way, this month, uh, six different very generous donors to the Cornwall Alliance have pledged to match everything up to a grand total of $50,000 that comes in in donations. Nice. So anybody who wants to donate to us can know that his his donation is going to be doubled. Sweet. So the way for people to do this, to, to get a copy of this wonderful book, is just to go to cornwallalliance.org, cornwallalliance.org. Scroll down to the bottom of the page. You'll see a donate button. Click there. Fill out the donation form. And when you're in the comments field, just write in, Promo code 22-08, that's for August of 2022. Nice. Uh, or the title, Fossil Future, either way, okay, and good. we will send it to them. Nice. So there is a U.N. report. Um, you know, it seems like every time a U.N. report comes out, there's there's some catastrophic code red, humanity is in trouble. How much fear-mongering is going on, and how much of this should we be 
really paying attention to. You're laughing. Uh, so. <laughs> uh, well, if if you could tell me a scale on which to measure. <laughs> Doesn't matter. I'm just putting fear into people's yeah. hearts. Right? right. Oh, yeah. The amount of fear mongering that comes out from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is really quite extraordinary. Now, I'm going to qualify what I just said there, though, because. If you read the actual scientific reports, which, of course, almost nobody ever reads, they run like 3,500, 4,500 pages, and they're all in scientific ease, right? Uh, But if you do read those, you never encounter the words like crisis or disaster or dangerous or uh, catastrophe or existential threat. Uh, you certainly don't encounter code red for humanity, which right. is the phrase that UN Secretary General uh, used in introducing this report back in February. No, all of that stuff comes from the PR department, mm-hmm. not in the actual scientific reports. And uh, you don't even find it. You don't even find that language in what's called the summary for policymakers that they put out. Um, And this is actually far more political than scientific. It's strange because it always goes beyond the findings of the scientific reports. But even that doesn't use that kind of language. So what you've got is uh, people who are committed to a political movement who take these scientific reports and embellish how they read and use this catastrophe language. And it's basically for political purposes, to further uh, political agendas, uh, including uh, the breakdown of national sovereignty, because if this is a global problem, well, it obviously needs a global solution, uh, you know, enforced by some sort of a global governance agency. Uh, Francois Mitterrand, the past president of France, called the uh, Kyoto Protocol to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change our first step toward global governance. Well, the Paris Agreement that came out in 2015 is a much bigger step in that direction. And of course, the the Great Reset is even more in that direction. So that's part of what motivates people. You've got the environmental movement, much of which thinks that the world is grossly overpopulated and wants us to go back to maybe, oh, 300 to 500 million people total in the world, which means you have to get rid of about 95 to 97% of us, (laughs) and they'll use Mm -hmm. climate change as as a rationale for reducing human population. Uh, all, All sorts of political things get involved here. But the actual scientific facts are that, uh, All that we can add to the uh, atmosphere in the way of carbon dioxide and other infrared absorbing or so-called greenhouse gases probably can't increase global average temperature by more than about a degree and a half to two degrees Celsius, Mm -hmm. which is not going to be harmful to any ecosystems and is actually primarily beneficial. Mm -hmm. And these same people at the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change also tell us that even if we don't do anything, to reduce our emission of these gases, by the year 2100, uh, people all over the world will be multiple times wealthier than they are now. Well, wealthy people can handle anything that climate throws at them. Mm-hmm. Poor people can't. Right. So, so the true. really crucial issue is 
how do we see whole societies rise and stay out of poverty? And it requires abundant, affordable, reliable energy power. And that comes primarily from fossil fuels, not from wind and solar. And it also requires private property rights, entrepreneurship, free trade, limited government, and the rule of law. And unfortunately, the environmental movement undermines both of those things. Mm-hmm. Cal, I've got 90 seconds left. I want to squeeze in one more question. <laughs> Please have Cal talk about the life cycle of renewable energy and how corrosive solar power is to dispose of and terrible oh, for right. Earth. Got yeah, a minute. Well, uh, I, I think the question states the answer pretty well. Yeah. Uh, both solar panels and wind turbines, uh, the major components of those are not recyclable and they include a lot of toxic metals, toxic chemicals, and they're going to present a huge problem to waste disposal as they wear out, reaching their uh, lifetime of typically about uh, anywhere from 15 to 30 years. Wow. Uh, That's going to be a a big, big problem. Yeah. Always enjoy having you on, Cal. Thank you so much. And I just want to remind listeners, you can head over to cornwallalliance.org and take advantage of his uh, special offer this month. Cal, have a great rest of the night, and thanks for uh, coming on the show. Thank you, Bill, and God bless you. God bless you. Uh, Dr. Cal Beisner has been my guest. And again, cornwallalliance.org, cornwallalliance.org. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for spending time with me. I've loved being with you, and I hope you have a great evening. As you lay your head on the pillow, know that God is always thinking about you, caring for you, loving you, working out his great plan in your life. Have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.